Peter, good evening to you. Let's turn to the gospel according to Mark tonight. I kind of got to the end of uh, chapter 2. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of the men bringing Bibles up the aisle right now, and uh, they'll put one into your hand. It'll be marked to our passage so you can follow along easily and allow the Word of God to not only go into the ear gate, but also into the the eye gate as well. And uh, we pick things up in chapter 2 in verse uh, 23. Now it happened as he, that is Jesus, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and that's significant. Uh, And as they went, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And so the disciples are traveling with Jesus. They became hungry. And uh, um, 2,000 years ago, there were no In-N-Out burgers or anything else like that. Uh, No place to just drop in and grab some food. And so they're obviously making their way from one place to another in the northern part uh, of Israel, up in the Galilee. And being hungry is probably the time in which uh, the wheat is uh, about to be harvested. They just took some uh, grain, uh, heads of grain in their hand, and then kind of uh, uh, rubbed it in, their, in between their hands, taking the chaff off of the meat of the, of the wheat and then eating it. And uh, so this was noticed by uh, the Jewish religious leaders, as we see in verse 24. And they said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Uh, it wasn't, whenever Jesus violated what they thought was a violation of the Sabbath, remember Jesus kept the entire law of Moses. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, and he did. But what he did do is he continually uh, stepped upon, in a, in a very holy way, a very needed way, upon their misunderstanding of the law of Moses and making the Sabbath law as well as other laws much more strict than God intended them to be. And so uh, it was absolutely lawful in the book of Deuteronomy, the law there was absolutely lawful if you were traveling and you were going by someone's field of wheat to take enough that you could uh, kind of winnow, uh, uh, thresh it in your hand, winnow away the chaff, and then eat that. God made that provision. You could not bring a sickle. Uh, and do that. You couldn't harvest it beyond that, but that was allowed in the law of Moses. But the Pharisees made the law of Moses concerning the Sabbath much more strict than than it was. I always enjoy reading about uh, the Pharisees and kind of what they do here. The two main uh, religious groups in Jesus' day were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the liberals of their day. Theological liberals. We have theological liberals today. Um, and the Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. They, uh, there was just anything supernatural. They just simply did not uh, believe in it. And, uh, and, and uh, as, uh, as is true of theological liberals within Christianity, uh, within professing Christianity even today, the Pharisees were, uh, they would never be one that would dismiss what any commandment of God or any revelation of God. What they did is, is they had a misguided zeal for the Word of God. And so if God said, uh, do A, then they figured that if God said do A, then do double A is even better. And so they took the, the demands of the law of Moses way beyond what God uh, intended. I, I, I would assume, I think about pastors a lot in this, uh, in this realm because I'm a pastor, 
But I think it's true probably of all of us as Christians we're, uh, it, it, who are not pastors. I think that most of us are loaded uh, toward one uh, kind of extreme or the other. If you're right in the middle, that's great. Keep taking your vitamins and reading your Bible, and uh, I'm glad for you. But a, 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 lot of, a, a lot of us, we come to know the Lord, and we have just a natural tendency toward uh, kind of becoming liberal, becoming soft, not making a stand uh, where the Bible says to make a stand. And so we cave on these things, trying to uh, garner uh, the support of the world around us or to be esteemed highly uh, by the world. Uh, and then you have the Pharisees who uh, take the Word of God and they make it more strict than, than it actually is. I'm probably loaded toward the, the Pharisee uh, end of things. I'm not a Pharisee, but I take the Word of God very seriously. And, and so I look and see if I have a tendency at this point, help me, Lord, by God's grace, I do not have a single bone in my body that has a bent toward liberalism. I just don't. It doesn't, it, it doesn't represent itself within my life. Uh, it, it might later. I find that now I cry during commercials uh, watching TV. I'm getting soft in ways that are very uh, embarrassing. And uh, so uh, while I'm watching movies and little dogs and kittens, I just got to get a rag and, and uh, wipe my eyes on it. I'm just kidding a little bit. But, but the Pharisee side of things, I have to watch this and, and that side from me. What it is with you, uh, you know, that's up to you. So they, they claim to Jesus uh, concerning the, the disciples, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? It's, the accusation is, is false. Uh, it wasn't unlawful on the Sabbath. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to make uh, Jesus appear as if uh, he and his ministry are contrary to the law of Moses and, and thus give them a reason to reject him uh, as, uh, as the Messiah. And then Jesus, he responds to them in this accusation, and he said, Have you never read? Now, this would have really bugged a Pharisee. We just read it and think, Have you never read? Uh, he, uh, these were kind of the experts related to the Bible. And when he's saying, Have you never read? It's like uh, he's casting doubt upon uh, how well they know the Bible. And so he uh, says, Have you never read when David, King David... When he was hungry, uh, when he was in need and hungry, uh, he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, except for the priests. And he also gave some of those, uh, some to those who were uh, with him. And so Jesus uh, takes and he responds to them. Uh, from uh, the Word of God, and the details of all of this is in First Samuel chapter 21. Remember, David was being uh, 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 a fugitive from King Saul. King Saul was trying to kill David, knowing that David is going to become the next king. It was an act of self-preservation and all. And so David runs for his life from the city of Jerusalem. And as he's running for his life, he's got uh, some colleagues, some friends that believe in him and believe God's call upon his life, and they run uh, with him. They don't have time to take any food. They don't have any time to even take any weapons. And they come to where Abiathar the priest is and, uh, and where uh, all of the worship of the Lord was taking place. And they come to Abiathar the priest, and it's in the city of Nob, 
And uh, Abiathar is once a week they would take the 12 loaves that had been baked and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. They would be put out before the Lord uh, in, in the tabernacle. And then at the end of, uh, of the week, then new, a new set of 12 loaves would be put in its place. And he said to Abiathar, do you have any bread? And Abiathar said, we have, I don't have any bread here. Uh, except for the 12 loaves that we're getting rid of here. Uh, but those are really only for the priests to eat. And David says, those will do just fine. And, uh, and Abiathar, after a discussion, then uh, gave the, the bread uh, to him. Now, Jesus, it, it, it's interesting, Jesus does acknowledge in verse 26 that that bread uh, that, that David took and he ate with his men in order to sustain them themselves, that that, in a technical sense, that bread was only lawful to eat uh, by the priests. It was not lawful, according to David. David broke, uh, violated the law of Moses in, uh, in eating, uh, eating that bread. And what, and what Jesus is saying here is that uh, in the Old Testament, God did not condemn David even though David was technically wrong in, in what he did. And I don't think everyone who reads the account uh, from David's early life, and you see this particular chapter in his life, they realize that David did not violate the spirit of the law uh, of Moses by eating the bread. And, and God understood that, and God had uh, mercy for him. And so D- Jesus is basically asking the Pharisees, would you rather have seen David die of starvation uh, in, in that particular situation as opposed to becoming uh, the greatest king in, in Israel's uh, history. It is interesting concerning David that he never did it again. He never looked at that and said, ah, oh, this is no big deal. I can just, uh, you know, play willy-nilly with the law of Moses and do whatever I want, and uh, that'll be acceptable to God. Never again did he touch the, the bread that was uh, meant for the priests at all. Never used it as a, an excuse to violate the, the Sabbath law on a whim. He definitely recognized the grace of God uh, in the uh, inci- incident. And so the Sabbath law, as Jesus is saying here, was never intended uh, to push hungry men toward starvation, especially when their hunger was due to the sins of others. The only reason David was on the uh, on the run in in uh, in Israel uh, and and in this constant flight and hunger was because of the sins of King Saul uh, and the nation and their re- their refusal to recognize David as being their king and and in the same way here in this very incident that Jesus is in the only reason that Jesus and his disciples. Uh, are eating uh, wheat from off of the wheat field and, and not sitting down before a sumptuous meal three times a day uh, and is, was because of the sin of these Jewish religious leaders here and, and the sin of the nation and not recognizing him uh, as, as their Messiah and then making him a king as a result. Jesus closes all of this in verse 27, and he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the the Sabbath day, the Saturday, the day of rest, it was intended to be exactly that, a day of rest. It was intended for by God, it was a gift by God to mankind. Uh, here we are, workaholics in the United States of America, working seven days a week or whatever it is, 60 hours a week. 
And, uh, but a Sabbath day was given. It was intended to be a day off, different from the other six days. And it was to be a day where no other, God just divinely protected the culture from putting any pressure upon them, uh, to make it other, anything other than this is my day to draw closer to the Lord, uh, in, in a, in a special way and to pursue the, the greatest thing a person can pursue in life. And that is depth in their relationship. Uh, uh, with the Lord, without the distractions of work and the demands of work. And the law and the Sabbath law was just a beautiful, beautiful law. But what the religious leaders of the Jews and specifically the Pharisees had done is that they, they had turned, uh, the, the Sabbath day with all of their extra things that they added to the Sabbath. They made the Sabbath day, the day that was supposed to be a day of rest, a greater burden on God's people than the other six days were. And and so the Sabbath day was far from being the day of rest that God intended it to be. All of them are wondering, as, as the religious leaders wondered about, could you wear your false teeth on the Sabbath day, or did that constitute uh, bearing a burden? Uh, could you spit on the Sabbath day? Because when you spit onto the dirt of the ground in those days, uh, the dirt would go in both directions and you're furrowing. That constitutes farming and plowing. These are the kind of questions that they dealt with on the Sabbath day till there were so many laws that were imposed upon them that nobody had time to think about God at all on the Sabbath day. All they could think about was all of these laws that these religious people had come up with and kind of imposed upon them. They were destroying what God intended the Sabbath day to be in a person's life, and that is a blessing. And that's why over and over again in the Gospels we see Jesus, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily deliberately at all times, but very often and sometimes deliberately, he uh, just he violates their interpretation of the Sabbath. Never the law of Moses, but their their interpretation because they were representing a relationship with God uh, very contrary to what God intended uh, the law to be and intended a relationship uh, to be uh, with Him. And so they they are absolutely ruining uh, the Sabbath again. Legalism ruins Christianity and and. Again, Again, there is, we embrace all of the commands of the Bible, all of the commands of the New Testament. And as we've been seeing on Sunday morning, the demands of the New Testament are even, in terms of commandments, are even more demanding than that of the Old Testament. And, and we embrace them. These are the, the obedience to God's commandments. They, they introduce us into life as it's intended to be lived. And, and they set us free. They are, they're intended to do that. They're intended to be uh, good for us. And so with, a, with regard to a straight line kind of command, we don't do what the Sadducees do, and that is uh, to explain away the demand of the commandment. But at the same time, we're very careful not to add our ideas, our opinions onto uh, what is communicated in the command and make it stricter than it actually is. God doesn't want that kind of help from anyone. And it doesn't help Christianity, doesn't represent it well. And so, uh, you know, this is Jesus, part of Jesus' warning here in, in all of this. And, uh, and so he uh, declares there in verse 28, Therefore the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so Jesus declares that here they are, they're looking for a reason 
to find a violation of the law of Moses in his life that would disqualify him to be recognized as the Messiah. He said, not only am I not going to let you get away with that, I'm not going to give you a reason to disqualify me on the basis of the law of Moses. I'm going to let you know that uh, I, 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 the Son of Man, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And so he's declaring himself to be divine here to them. He created the heavens. He created the earth. He created everything in them. He created the Sabbath. And thus he is the Lord of the Sabbath. How could they teach him anything about the Word of God? How could they teach him anything uh, about the Sabbath when he created it? And so he alone understood what the Sabbath was intended to be. And they should not have been instructing him related to the Sabbath, but they should have been learning from him uh, related to the Sabbath and uh, and in terms of what is right or wrong uh, on, on a Sabbath day uh, and, and what he has to say about it is the truth, not their traditions or, or their uh, legalistic in, in interpretations of, of the Old Testament. And now we go into chapter 3 and we move from the wheat field and back into a synagogue, uh, probably in Capernaum. And he entered the synagogue, uh, and very much, yes, in Capernaum, we know from the other Gospels. And he, Jesus, entered into the synagogue again. And so he attends, Jesus, uh, though the Son of God, he attended weekly services uh, at, at the Jewish synagogue in Capernaum. And, and so he entered into that uh, synagogue, and in that synagogue was a man who had a withered hand. Uh, and so he's got a hand. It's basically his hand in his arm is like a claw. Uh, you think of Bob Dole. Uh, some of you won't know. You're too young. But Bob Dole had that arm, and he could put kind of a pen or a pencil in it. And that, but he couldn't. He couldn't use it at all. There's no life. There's no vitality uh, w- within his hand. And he's sitting there uh, in in the synagogue. And then they, that is the religious leaders who are also uh, present, uh, they watch Jesus very, very closely. This is probably a setup. The man is in the synagogue, and uh, and now they're going to see if Jesus is going to violate uh, the Sabbath, really their interpretation of the Sabbath, by healing this man. And, and so they watched him closely, whether he would heal him, again significantly, on the Sabbath, so that then they might accuse him of a lawbreaker and thus reject him uh, as the Messiah. And so uh, here they are, and this is the whole dynamic uh, about uh, uh, within the room. It's interesting that they knew something, though they were enemies of Jesus, really. Uh, they knew something about Jesus that was very interesting. And what they knew about Jesus is that when he walked into any room, that his attention would be drawn first to the person in that room with the greatest need. They knew that there was no way that Jesus would enter into this synagogue and not immediately notice this man and the greatness of his infirmity there uh, in the room, and that this would that this was characteristic of Jesus. And so uh, they they knew this of him, and so they watched him now closely to see whether he would heal or not. What a wonderful thing to be known for! Uh, is that kind of an attitude that when a person enters into a room, uh, the the first one that's going to gain their immediate attention is the person with the greatest need uh, within the room. And to know that about Jesus related to our need. I don't know who's got the greatest need in the room tonight. 
But Jesus said, where two or more are gathered together, he's here in our midst in a special way. And so he goes to you, and he works with you, and he meets your need. And when he meets your need, then he moves to the next person who has the greatest need in the room, and so forth, as he's active by his Holy Spirit in in a room uh, like this. And so this is uh, important to know about him. And I think it's also important to realize that as we grow in Christ-likeness, this very characteristic... Uh, will become characteristic of our lives when we come to church or we really we go uh, anywhere. The natural tendency, even for us as Christians, in, in our flesh and apart from the Holy Spirit, is to gravitate, even at church, to gravitate to those who we know, those that we know well, those that are in our comfort zone. Uh, we gravitate toward healthy people. Uh, people that have problems are, well, they got problems. And, uh, and, and we know that, and so we don't want to maybe, you know, be bothered with that or be dragged down by that. And so there's that great tendency to, to move to people that we know and move to the healthiest or the strongest or, you know, those with titles within a church or whatever it might be. And then not to look uh, in the fellowship hall or in a room like this or out in the courtyard and say, who's the person that's sitting alone here? Uh, who's the person that's crying? Who's the person with the greatest need in this environment that I'm, I'm walking into? And the more that we become like Christ and other-centered, we will lay aside our desire to be with the healthy or to be with the people that are sometimes the funnest to be, and now our, our lives will be drawn to the person with the greatest need. This is very important to be a characteristic in a pastor. Uh, or to be uh, a characteristic of elders or deacons or leadership in a church, but not just leaders, but characteristic of every single one of us as Christians. It is to be uh, like Christ. And, and, the, and, the, and the, all of us, each of us, and this is turning into an exhortation, but I'm not wanting to be just an encouragement, but all of us have a responsibility doesn't matter if you go to this church or any church that you, we would go to in the whole world or any church that you will attend in the course of your three score and ten. But in that environment that we find ourselves uh, in, in that church, uh, to have this kind of an attitude and that the responsibility isn't just of the worship team or leaders or this, for this to be a welcoming place, a warm place a place where people in need get noticed and people make sure that they're okay. That that sifts, that responsibility sifts to every single uh, one of us. And it's to be like Christ. I don't need to tell you uh, how fragmented our culture is and, and how disjointed it is and, and uh, how easy it is for someone to be living in Modesto or in the area. All of the rest of their family lives in Cleveland or in Florida or wherever it might be. And they're all alone in Modesto in terms of meaningful relationship. And, and yet, and, but the one place to have relationship, the one place to bring my tears, to bring my hurts, and to, not to be ignored and everybody pretend that I'm not crying on the bench in the fellowship hall, is it church. And when a person uh, is not acknowledged in that way and somebody doesn't get to them that notices them, then uh, where are they going to go? 
uh, and, and find that because this is something that's to be uh, unique to us uh, in, in the body of Christ. That if you've got a need, come here and, and somebody's going to, uh, to, to minister to you. Uh, it, this this passage, it, the reason, one of the reasons that I like it so much is that it's the first Bible study I ever taught was from this passage. I was a brand, absolutely brand new Christian and attending Calvary Chapel of Napa. And they had three morning services, and so we would get there an hour before the first service and stay till an hour after. And we were part of this larger team that, uh, you know, cleaned up between the services, got everything uh, ready for the next service and all of this. And so uh, prior to people beginning to appear at, at the 745 service, we would get together and uh, the group of us, and we would pray together, and someone would share a three-minute devotional and uh, something that would kind of speak to us in light of the day, prepare us for uh, ministering to God's people. And I remember that was the first thing that the Lord ever uh, put on my heart, and I taught. And so I know some of you don't believe it, (laughs) that I said something in three minutes, but I did. And, And... and so it's always had a very warm spot in my life. And so Jesus then uh, said to the man who had the withered hand, he said, step forward. So Jesus, they're playing this game. Everybody's watching out of the corner of their eye and all. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And so he calls on him to come front and center where everybody can see him. And then he said, having said to the the man with the withered hand, spoke to him, step forward. Now he speaks to the Jewish religious leaders. And he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life uh, or to uh, kill? And and so he uh, he, he poses the question uh, to them. It is interesting to me in, in all of this that these religious leaders absolutely believed in Jesus' ability to heal this man. They knew he could heal him. The whole land's filled with people that Jesus had healed. And the conclusion would be, it wasn't like there were a thousand rabbis in, in Jewish history or a thousand rabbis in Israel at that time who were healing people the way that Jesus was healing people, cleansing people of lepers. I mean, they, they should have automatically recognized, this is a confession that they should have recognized him as, as the Messiah, knowing that he had the power to heal. That was not the question in their mind. The only question in their mind was, was he going to do it on the Sabbath day or not? So, so they, uh, this was, this, all of these things filled, filled their mind. Now, according to their interpretation of the law of Moses concerning healing on the Sabbath day, uh, you could do, you could, you could do whatever was required to save a person's life if they had an accident or a problem. Uh, but you, you couldn't do anything more than that. So if a person got a gash on their arm, you could put a tourniquet on their arm, but you couldn't stitch it up till the next day. If they broke a leg, uh, you could get them comfortable someplace, but you could not set the leg until the next day. You could protect their life, but you could not uh, I- advance in any way uh, their, their healing. And, and so uh, Jesus here... Is he's about to heal the, the, uh, if Jesus healed the man with the withered hand here, he again would not be violating uh, the law of Moses concerning the Sabbath, but he would be violating their, uh, uh, rigid and, and, uh, uh, beyond what God intended interpretations of, 
of the law of Moses. And then, again, they could accuse him of wrongdoing and have uh, something from the law of Moses to bolster their uh, reason for rejecting him uh, as, as the Messiah. And so uh, uh, Jesus declared to them, lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to uh, kill. And so Jesus let them know, I mean, with real authority, he let them know that God never intended uh, the Sabbath to ever be a limitation on doing good. Uh, for people, and that their interpretation of the Sabbath, it restricted the, the expression of doing good uh, for others in need. And because it did, their interpretation of the law did not represent the intent or the heart of God. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying to them. And because you see their response, no response, they they were silent. And so Jesus, seeing that they're not going to uh, respond to him, to admit that they're the one that is wrong in this synagogue, uh, when he had looked around, he looked at them with anger. I'm so glad I will never see uh, his face in anger directed toward me. And being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. I mean, how hard-hearted can you be? Uh, here is a, put, there's no empathy. There's no putting themselves in the shoes of the other person. If you had any of that at all, you would be, you'd go into that synagogue and saying, I hope Jesus shows up at synagogue service today and heals this guy. Wouldn't it be terrible to have a withered hand like that? There's nothing like that in their hearts. And they're the Jewish religious leaders of the nation of Israel. What an awful characteristic of, of the people who claim to represent uh, God the most and yet and I think this is what produced the righteous anger in Jesus and, and, and grieved him most of all. And so he then said to the man, he said, stretch out your hand. And then he stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now, I, I, want, I want you to look at something here in his, at the end of, of verse 5 here. It's very important because it's a two-faced thing here. Pretend you don't know what Jesus does in the synagogue. He's got this man standing in front of this entire audience in, in the room. And, and here he is with his, his brokenness and, and uh, physical uh, in, infirmity and all. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He's saying this to a cripple. And I say the word carefully, but I say it deliberately. Because I don't want to be politically correct on it, though I'm sensitive. I got enough problems in my own life. They just don't happen to be a withered hand that you can see. We all recognize that about our lives. And one of the things that if you stood in that scene, it has tremendous application for us today. If you stood in that scene of that synagogue, and Jesus said, stretch forth your hand to this man... One of the first thoughts that might enter your mind is, look at him. That is an awful thing to do. He is making fun and making a spectacle of a cripple in front of everyone. And, and at that moment, they don't know that Jesus is going to heal of this man. Because what Jesus says to this man, look, it, it seems so simplistic to him. It's like, can't you see his problems a little more complicated than, than just stretch out your hand? 
Don't you think that if he could stretch out his hand, he would have stretched out his hand a long time ago. Why are you making fun of this man? But the simplicity of the command that he gave. And I would contend in our own Christian lives and in our own growth in in spirituality and receiving uh, the power of God and the healing of God in our lives. That every one of us, you may not have a withered hand like he has, but you've got a broken heart or you've got a broken mind or you've got whatever it is that's going on in your your life. And then you turn to the Bible and say, what do I do with my guilt? What do I do with my worry? What do I do with my unforgiveness? And you find where the Bible says, this is what we need to do and to look at what God tells us to do. And it seems so simplistic. It seems like he doesn't understand how complicated my problem is because if he did, he would never say something so simplistic as that as a solution to it. And there's a temptation to do that with the Word of God. And to look at, and I'm telling you, if you haven't run into it yet, within your own heart or in other people voicing it to you as Christians, then uh, as a Christian, then, then you will. And they look at it and, and, and they look and they say, God calls us to do these things that are absolutely impossible, uh, for us to, uh, to do. And he's making a spectacle of us. And, and when he tells us to deal with these issues in, in our lives in this simplistic way, uh, that he does, it only shows that he doesn't understand, uh, the depth of our problem. And, and so uh, now today, um, more and more, you see uh, the psychological language, uh, the therapeutic language that is being applied to the conditions of man. Uh, and these conditions are now viewed as we understand them more than ever. We understand them to be incredibly complex in people's lives. And then we look at the Word of God and say, how can the Word of God apply to this now, knowing what we know about the human body and the psyche and so forth? And the reason that the Word of God is powerful in any situation, in anything it commands us to do, is because it's the Word of God. And God never gives us a commandment in His Word, except that He then gives us the ability to obey that commandment. He stands behind every single commandment. And for this man, it was stretch out your hand. For us, it has to do with forgiveness or whatever the other issue might be related to our lives. I can't do that. It's more complicated than that. You're making fun of me. It can't be that simple. And then when we will simply obey what he has called us to do, we will discover the power to do it. And so in this scene is a picture of... Uh, of of, of obeying every command in the Bible. It's, it is a, a picture of the truth behind every command in the Bible. That every command that God gives to us, He then gives us a supernatural ability to do it. And then when we will obey that commandment, resting in His power, then as we obey that commandment, and only then... Do we then discover the power to do it? As this man's going to see in a moment. We will get to his healing, by the way. 
But so often we spend, here is a command of God and the, and the uh, protestations within our heart. Uh, here's my thing. Someone comes in for counseling and here's my deal. It takes him an hour and a half to lay the whole thing out. And what do I do here? What does the Bible uh, say related to that? And you turn them to two scriptures and say, this is exactly what God wants you to do here in, in, uh, this situation. And it, it, it looks like, again, looks like God is being cruel that he doesn't understand, uh, you know, the magnitude of my problem. And the problem is, is that so many people stay right there. They can leave a counseling session or private conversation with a Christian and absolutely leave in a huff. And there's another person that just doesn't understand. No, they do understand. And God understands above all. And that is when he commands us to do something, he'll give us the power to do it. And what is true of this man concerning his hand is true of every infirmity in our life. That is, we obey what God says about that circumstance or situation or infirmity or place of brokenness within our life, we will discover not only the power to obey it, but then to discover the healing that comes with obeying it. And so we see as it, ha- as it happened to him, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Oh, man. If that's on YouTube, I'd sure like you send me the site uh, for that. That must have been something. To see, And as a result of it, the Jewish religious leaders looked and said, nobody can do that uh, but the Messiah. Nobody can do that but the Son of God. We were all wrong about you, Jesus, and now we're going to become your followers as well. Now, that's a different Bible. Uh, we see in verse 16 their reaction, the hardness of the heart. And then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy him. And these are the people that are claiming to speak for God and to represent God and, and, and Judaism in, in the Old Testament at that time. It's just an awful, no humility at all uh, uh, in, in their lives at all, intent now upon uh, de- destroying him. Uh, and then Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. See a Galilee, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and uh, they came from Judea as well, and from Jerusalem. His fame is so great in terms of his healing power and his teaching, and all people are coming from uh, from the Galilee area, the north of Israel, coming from Judea and Jerusalem. That's in the south. They came from Idumea and beyond the Jordan. People were coming from the following uh, uh, surrounding countries now, and a great multitude came, and when they heard how many things he was doing, uh, they came to him. I mean, de- desperation in their life. And, it, and, 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 and here is a word of what a man is doing. And they began to come to him. And uh, so he told his disciples uh, that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude just off the shore, uh, lest they should crush him. Now, that's quite a crowd. But... Um, you know, at Christmas time, you know, these uh, uh, stores, whether it's Walmart or Best Buy's or whoever, they'll put these TVs or whatever it is on this ridiculously low uh, price. And, and so that people will come in and there's only a certain number of them. And then you can also, you know, if you're base enough, uh, watch that on the news as well. People in fist fights trying to get a 55-inch uh, TV or, or whatever it is. But the desperation, the desperation to buy a television for sale at a lower, a, a low price. Think about the desperation 
of all of being demon-possessed, of, of all of these infirmities and leprosy and all of this, the, the desperation with which this crowd surged uh, toward Jesus. There was concern that they would crush him, for he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. Oh, you just see the desperation of it. I mean, there he is on the shore, and all you see is this wall of people in front of him, but then two and three rows behind, just these hands coming out through the crowd, just trying to get a hold of him for healing, and 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 and, and the need and the desperation uh, of the crowd, uh, desiring to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, saying, "You are the Son of God." But he sternly warned them that they should not make. Uh, him uh, known, and then uh, when uh, and he went up uh, on the mountain there in the area of the Galilee, and he called to himself those uh, he himself wanted, and he's going to choose the twelve apostles at this point in time, and, and obviously if he chooses the twelve to come to him, he is calling them from a, a far larger. A number of disciples that were following him at this time. And so uh, he called them now, uh, those who he himself wanted, he was going to make them apostles, and they came, uh, they came uh, to him. And then he appointed twelve that they might be with him, number one, and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. The order there in verses 14 and 15 is so important in our Christian service. Every Christian is called to give our lives away for the the edification of the body of Christ or the advancement of the body of Christ. We cannot be like Christ without also serving in some, some way. And when he calls us, whether it's to be an apostle or whatever he calls us uh, to do, uh, the order of priority is, is so clear here and so important. Number one, he called them that they might be with him. It, 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 that the relationship was key. The relationship is everything. Uh, that's the most important thing, that they would grow in their, their calling, uh, grow into their, their gifting by virtue of being with Him, spending time with Him. We don't have face-to-face time with the Lord. That happens in our life and our devotional uh, lives. And then have, keeping the priority of the relationship supreme in our Christian service, then second to that, still important, but of secondary importance in comparison, he then sends them out to do the things that, that, they are, uh, that he had called them to do, and for them specifically as apostles. It is always a challenge because there's always more need in our lives as we serve the Lord than we can ever get to. And there's the great challenge not to flip this on its head and make our service to the Lord uh, have it become more important to us than our relationship with Him. But it is, it, there is a crash and burn. There is a humbling. Uh, 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 there, there's no longevity in that. And, and the importance for all of us as we serve the Lord, because we need you. Uh, we need the gifting and the calling. We need every single person in the body of Christ to be doing what God has called them to do. I mean, people aren't a dime a dozen that serve the Lord. Your gifting isn't a dime a dozen. And, and one of the surest ways uh, to 
for a church to sink or for the body of Christ to sink as a whole is for people to elevate service to where it crowds out now uh, the relationship and, and it just won't work. And these priorities are important to be reminded of. I'm always happy at pastor's conferences when someone reminds us of this very thing because I always need to be reminded of it. And so he gave them this power and then the 12 apostles, he names them now. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boanerges, uh, that is the sons of thunder. Uh, there was also Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, Thaddeus, Simon, the uh, Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. And they went into uh, a house. It is very important to to know and to be reminded of, of the fact that these apostles were all extraordinarily young. I don't know what you think of when you think of uh, the Apostle John or the Apostle Peter uh, or, or James at, at this particular point in their life and ministry. Uh, the, sometimes we can think of them at the end of their life when they're old men, when they die martyrs' deaths. But it is almost certain that every single one of these 12 were in their early 20s. That's astonishing responsibility that he is giving to a group of men, young men, uh, of that age. It's believed that the Apostle John was probably no more than, certainly in his teens and perhaps no older than 16. And, and this is who he's calling aside to him in order to become the apostles. He's entrusting the advancement of the kingdom of God following his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to this group. Really, really amazing. And I think uh, concerning the Jesus's, uh, the lessons concerning Jesus's choice of the apostles is that to, to realize that in any calling in our life, God's callings are his enablings. Whatever he calls us to do, he will enable us uh, to do. To me, the calling is everything. It is everything. Once we learn this is what God has called us to do, then, then we can be confident that God will make us successful by his definition, not by American Christianity or American culture uh, definitions of success. But he will make us successful in, in what it is that he has uh, uh, called us uh, to. He will make us uh, fruitful. And that's a tremendous truth and encouragement to all of us as God's servant, uh, servants. God's calling is the guarantee of success. I think another thing that's important to learn here as well is that by and large, not always, but by and large, God chooses very, very ordinary uh, people to do his work. And you think to yourself, uh, how does he get away with it? Uh, because they have a great God. They have a great God. And, and, uh, and, and, but, but this is the, the way that he, he chooses people. Here you have this, this list of the, the 12 uh, uh, apostles. And I mean, there's no formal education and none certainly of a religious nature. They're fishermen and they're tax collectors and they're zealots and no wealth. They have no life experience beyond, for the most part, the Sea, uh, sea of Galilee. Very, very rough uh, around the edges. Very, very young, uh, uh, as I, I've said. 
And yet, God is going to use them to uh, turn the whole world right side up in, in that, that early uh, church history. And I just want to say, never, ever, ever talk yourself out of God's calling upon your life because of these things. Because you look at what God is calling you to do, and you realize what will be required in order to do that, and that you do not possess the natural ability or the skill to be able to fulfill what God is calling you to do. And when you see and I see that great gap between what we know ourselves to be and what is demanded in the calling that God is calling us to to do, we must never allow that to, uh, to be used by ourselves to talk ourselves out of taking that step of faith and, and then uh, obeying God in that, that calling. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that God's choice of us should always leave us baffled. And it should always leave everyone baffled, but you supremely, that he's called you to do what he's done. My favorite quote of all time related to this, and I mention it every so often by Gail Irwin, the only thing that makes me wonder about God is his choice of me. And the reason that he chooses weak things and non-noble things and, and ordinary kind of people for the most part to advance his, his kingdom is that when he does something good through our lives, everybody knows it's because of him. They can't explain it in terms of natural talent. Look at the body of Christ. Do you realize Christianity is, is continuing to advance geometrically around the world? At the same time in the United States of America and the Western world, you know, atheism is trying to bury us and all of these different kinds of things. And, and you've got all of these, like, eggheads. I don't, I don't even know, I, and I use the term affectionately, but they, what they got on their SATs and how absolutely frustrating it must be to people who uh, are hostile to Christianity and then to watch this thing advance all over the world in the hands of a bunch of farmers. Sorry, farmers. That would have been better in San Francisco or something a little too... Or a bunch of fishermen. I mean, it, it, it is a marvel that Christianity has even survived for 2,000 years in the light of who he makes leaders within his church and in the light of who he saves... And, and he makes us the, the, the banner of, of what he loves to do among mankind. They gotta just go to bed at night deeply troubled, uh, that they cannot extinguish easily what from all appearances ought to be easily extinguished on the basis of who God uses to advance his kingdom. And yet it continues to advance. And it continues to advance. Because behind the calling, God adds his power and he adds his enablement uh, related uh, to that. And it's so important to understand that uh, 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 about him and about ourselves. He chooses us so that when he uses us, everyone will realize that can't be him. That can't be her. God must be alive. Uh, and, and, and it's a witness. And then he receives the, uh, the glory uh, and uh, so important to understand it or else we'll never obey God's call related uh, to our lives to begin with. Knowing ourselves to, uh, to, to be as simple as we know ourselves to be. I don't know what you think of me 
I know people think a lot of things of me. I get a lot of things that come around the bend back to me, and people say, well, I've, I've been told you're always this, or you're always that, or you never, or you hate this, or you never do this. And I think, where in the world do these rumors get started? That's nothing at all like me. I'm way worse than everything you've just said uh, about my life. But people have these opinions about me. And the thing that you need to know about me as, as a pastor and your pastor is all I am is a cable splicer and a lineman from Pacific Bell who is trying to fulfill the hardest thing God could have called a person like me to so that one day I can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. And I think that so often within a church, people look at pastors or that God puts in these kind of positions and it's like, that's the man. And there's such a disrespect toward authority and they just assume that this guy is, you know, he loves the position, he loves the power, and he, and he loves to push people around or whatever it might be and all, and not realizing that at our core, certainly in every pastor that I know, at our core, we are, we are more mystified by God's use of us and more eager to abandon the calling if he would give us a permission and an out which he never uh, gives to us because the gifts and the callings of God are, uh, are without repentance. But just to know that about people in the church. And I think that a lot of times there's a bad attitude toward authority or to think that, hey, this guy, you know, he runs roughshod over people or he, he you know, he handles people like this or, or whatever it, whatever it might, might be and not to realize, no, we are something that we understand are to be, to be very, very far in, in our natural man from what God has called us to do. And the great gap between what we know that we are apart from Him and what He chooses to do with us is more glaringly apparent to us, all of us, than it is to anyone else. And then He receives the glory, but it keeps us close to Him. It keeps us dependent uh, 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 upon, uh, upon Him. God uses ordinary people for the most part. Don't let that ever... Uh, ever discourage you when he calls you to do something and the first thing that you can see are all the reasons you can't do it and 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 why you wouldn't be able to do it and then not realizing it's the very reason that he's calling you uh, to this particular uh, thing. Uh, he will give us what we need to be faithful in what he calls us to do. And maybe there's a calling or two that God's speaking to somebody, uh, in, uh, you know, in the last week or two or last couple of months and, and in someone's life. And here you are. All you see is why you'll never be successful. And yet you know God has called you. You won't, uh, you, you won't be unsuccessful. You will be successful in, in what, uh, God will add to you whatever needs to be added to you uh, for your life to be an impact for his kingdom. We'll stop there tonight because we get into the unpardonable sin and there's a little bit of uh, baggage has to be uh, unpacked related to that.
I can never come to the unpardonable sin, um, which is uh, a, a remarkable uh, sin, by the way. We, uh, any sin that's unpardonable gets your attention. We'll talk about it when uh, we're back together again. I have a friend named Joseph Prudhomme. He's a pastor of Calvary Chapel in Solano County in uh, Fairfield. He's French-Canadian. And uh, one time he, he came here and he spoke many, many years ago. And I think he spoke uh, on the uh, unpardonable sin. But he called it the unpardonable sin. And uh, with a French, you know, a French accent can almost make it appealing. Uh, it, it, it gives it a romantic kind of flair. I almost felt like I needed to come back and warn the congregation. This is serious business. Uh, imagine that Joseph was teaching, not with a French accent, but a German accent. And you'll have some sense related to uh, the unpardonable sin. Uh, so let's have the worship team come forward. And I'd like them just to close us in a couple of short worship songs and, and uh, just allow the Lord to put any finishing touches of His Spirit upon our lives here tonight before we close up.